Uh, good evening, uh, everybody. Uh, welcome to this event. You may know the story of the vicar who invited the bishop to come and talk to the Women's Institute. Uh, and when the bishop arrived, there was nobody in the audience. And the bishop said to the vicar, did you tell them I was coming? And the vicar said, well, no, but somehow the word got out. <laughs> Obviously, the word has got out that we have four stars here today to help us understand what is uh, the most uh, striking uh, economic crisis I think that most of us here um, have lived through. Of course, there are different views, and you'll find them in the panel. Um, but many of us are afraid that this is going to be the worst recession uh, since the Second World War. Other people have even said in the last uh, hundred years. So let's hear what uh, the stars have to say about it, uh, what is going on, what is likely to go on, uh, and what can be done uh, to make things better. Uh, we have, and the order of speaking is, first we have Tim Besley, uh, leading member of the Economics Department. All four are members of the Economics Department, as I'm sure you know. Uh, Tim Besley, uh, also a member of the Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England, and therefore uh, in a position to do something about this. <laughs> uh, then uh, Francesco Caselli, who is a leading macroeconomist and director of the macroeconomic programme in the Centre for Economic Performance. Then we have Chris Bissarides, a uh, world-famous expert on employment, uh, and also a former member of the Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of Cyprus. Uh, and finally, Danny Kwa, uh, who's head of the Economics Department uh, and famous for his work on growth and distribution. So you're going to get very different perspectives, uh, I can tell you, because I've seen the slides uh, from all of them. And I'd like to uh, uh, tell you first that each is going to speak for 10 minutes exactly. We're going to have to be very disciplined about this uh, in order to leave time for questions. And I'd like to ask Tim to start off. I think someone's going to come and put on the, uh, the PowerPoint. No, no, you just do that. <laughs> oh, excellent. Very good. Thank you. So thank you very much, Richard, and thanks all of you for coming. I hope you'll forgive me. I'm going to read my opening remarks because this is an on-the-record event, but I promise I won't, I'm not going to read the answers to your questions. Um, so uh, the world is now in the grips of a major economic downturn. It's impossible to know how protracted or severe this will be. A great deal depends on the success of the policy responses. One striking feature of the current downturn is the apparent degree of synchronization across economies. This is illustrated in my first three charts. Uh, the first is for manufacturing purchasing managers indexes for China, the Eurozone, India, Japan, the UK, and the USA. And I think you'll, you'll see from that picture rather clearly what I mean by a synchronized downturn. Another window on this is to look at industrial production growth for emerging market economies and the developed world. And again, a very similar picture emerges of an extremely synchronized downturn. Finally, I'll look at the data for uh, the Eurozone, Japan, and the UK and the USA, again, for industrial production. And you'll see the 
again, the very synchronized and distinctive downturn. And I've put on, that, on these charts, just for the sake point of reference, uh, September uh, 2008, and you can see how pronounced the downturn is after that date. Now, while some signs of weakness were already apparent, it's also noticeable how far the global economy took a turn for the worse after the collapse of Lehman Brothers last September. This evening, I want to say a word or two about the policy responses to the downturn. The extent of policy activism in responding to this crisis is remarkable by any historical standard. There are three main elements of this. The first is a series of measures aimed at limiting directly the fallout from the financial crisis, including efforts to improve liquidity in financial markets, to recapitalize banks, and to limit the impact of their difficult-to-value assets on their lending activity. Without such measures, we'd face the prospect of an even more severe uh, credit squeeze with a further impact on households and businesses. Some of these measures have been needed to prevent a wholesale collapse in the global financial system. The aim of policy now is to restore lending to levels that does not cause excessive damage to the real economy. The second is the loosening of monetary policy, mainly so far by lowering official policy rates. This is illustrated in, chart, in my second chart, uh, sorry, my fourth chart, which gives official policy rates for a number of countries. While there are some differences in the mandates of central banks, a common feature of the policy response is the need to limit the potential deflationary implications of weakening nominal demand growth. This reduces the chance of a period of debt deflation, which would have further adverse feedback effects onto indebted households and businesses directly and hence into the financial system. And third, there have been fiscal policy responses. These are geared towards supporting demand in the face of weakening private investment spending and softening household demand. And the following chart shows how varied in magnitude these responses have been around the world. Now, uh, it's clear in all of these three policy domains there is unfinished business. There's much interest in the supporting role of monetary policy in the current climate. The state of the economy complicates the conduct of monetary policy in a number of ways, though. Chiefly, it's difficult to be sure how large the stimulus to the economy through the cuts in interest rates that we've seen since last autumn will actually be. Lags in monetary policy transmission are often acknowledged to be long and variable, and it's particularly difficult to judge the likely speed of any response at the moment. There are also uncertainties due to the headwinds coming from restrictions in the creation of credit and from the weaker global economic outlook. Unlike previous episodes of economic weakness, we entered the current downturn after a period of low and stable inflation. This is broadly true across the developed world. In the UK, the inflation target has served as an effective anchor for inflation expectations over the last 10 years. The challenge for the MPC in the coming months will be to ensure that the inflation target remains credible in the face of a weaker economy and with a much weaker outlook for global commodity prices. However, in our case, pressures from weaker sterling will likely provide some upward pressure on prices of traded goods as it passes through to consumers. In general, the role of monetary policy in an episode like this one is to support the growth of nominal demand to guard against deflationary risks. While this will support the real economy, it's important to be realistic about the role of monetary policy and what it can play in that respect. The first order issue for the economy remains trying to stabilize the banking system using appropriate financial market policies to achieve this while not unduly constraining households and businesses from access to finance. Direct measures to prevent a sharper than desirable credit contraction should be understood and evaluated against the background of clearly defined policy objectives. 
The inflation targeting framework with independent decisions by the MPC remains, in my view, a sound structure for monetary policy in the UK. In the conduct of both monetary and fiscal policy, there is a need to maintain a disciplined approach. We all understand that debt is only deferred taxation and that the challenge is to provide a, a time path for fiscal policy that is sustainable over the medium term. It's also clear that globally coordinated fiscal expansion, as opposed to each country going it alone, has particular merits in a world of economic integration. As I'm sure you're aware, the need for coordinated global policy response is a key refrain from the, world, from the weekend's G7 meeting. But nobody should expect a return to the kind of business as usual at the early part of the millennium. The originate and distribute model of bank finance needs rethinking. The merits of adopting some kind of dynamic provisioning for capital requirements will surely be an important proposal for discussion. Regulators also seem destined to scrutinize and regulate some aspects of banks' vulnerabilities induced by their funding structures. This must include an assessment of the potential externalities across institutions. Households, too, may also find that access to mortgage credit, particularly loans at high multiples of earnings, are more keenly scrutinized. It'll be greater for, uh, there'll be a need for greater international surveillance of global imbalances and how they might unwind. But it's only possible to act if there's an effective global policy coordination on these issues. Thus, questions about the global financial architecture to deal with this must be resolved. To be effective, authorities have to be given the right instruments to target the right problems with clearly defined policy objectives. There's some confusion on this. The idea that we can and use short-term interest rates to quell asset booms or to curb lending practices is intellectually and practically suspect. It's essential that policy instruments tackle the problem at source rather than distorting policy instruments better suited to other ends. While the manifestation of the current global crisis is visible at the macro level, many of the issues both now and in the future are microeconomic in nature. The crisis in part reflects poorly designed risks control and incentive structures in financial markets. It's also important to understand the macroeconomic implications of how these spill over from institution to institution so that bad apples do not poison the barrel. Even though we're dealing with the immediate fallout and mitigating its consequences, it's also important that policy responses remain focused on long-term policy goals. There's an underlying need for a period of economic adjustment both here and elsewhere it's important that, these, that this takes place, and it's neither possible nor desirable for policies to prevent this from happening. This adjustment will lay the foundations for the recovery when it comes. A move towards protectionism and to limit the beneficial role of competitive forces is particularly to be avoided. While there are many questions being raised about the period leading up to the credit crunch, this period of globalization undoubtedly created huge economic benefits in both rich and poor countries. It's important that these global gains remain in place. While there are forces that are working in the opposite direction, it's important for the long-term health of the UK and the global economy as a whole to strengthen globalization rather than retreating from it. Now, I'm sitting on the platform more as an academic than as a part-time policymaker. Thus, I'll end these comments by joining the current episode to three key themes that have played a dominant role in my academic research and thinking on economic policy over the past 20 years. The first is the study of market failure. Economists have long been armed with an appreciation of the importance of market failure. Indeed, contrary to what is often claimed, economists have a much more refined sense of what makes markets fail than what makes them succeed. For much of the, uh, for, for much of the past few years, uh, there, have been, there have been some things that seem to work well in practice, even though they should not have worked so well in theory. 
Some asset-backed securities markets are a case in point. It was always a mystery how the severe adverse selection problems were kept at bay. I'm certain that the burden of proof will now shift and that this will have practical consequences for the way in which business is conducted. Regulation will be effective, though, only when it's clear in its focus on the exact source of market failure. The second theme is the forces that shape the rise of the state and the growth of fiscal capacity, the power to tax. A remarkable feature of the current episode is how the very considerable fiscal resources available to the state are being marshaled to solve the problems of private banking and capital markets. This is a reminder of the very important market-supporting role that fiscal capacity developed over years of crises and wars plays in modern economies. While nobody welcomes the human consequences of major events like wars and depressions, it's in the face of tough rather than easy times that many important long-term policy reforms are undertaken. The third is the study of government failure. <coughs> government and state institutions work well when incentives are clear and accountability structures are in place. The modern democratic state is on the whole the finest form that mankind has yet devised for this purpose. Reflecting this, the past 20 years or so have seen a remarkable wave of democratization. Using the widely accepted polity for definition, 36% of independent states were democratic in 1983, compared to 67% in 2003. But democracy naturally creates expectations among citizens. It'll be a while until we know whether the very considerable government activism that we're now seeing is deemed to have been successful. But it's clear that the stakes are extremely high, and this will shape the perception of state effectiveness for a generation or longer. Thank you very much. Thanks. Um, these are three questions I will try to say something about uh, tentatively tonight. Um, the first one is, uh, is this recession special? The, the, the special nature of the current recession has become a, a piece of common wisdom in the media uh, and in policy circles. Uh, so I want to look a, lit a little bit uh, about what's, uh, what's that about. Um, the second question is, um, if it is special, why is it special? What's special about it? And the third one is whether the policy response we are putting in place is right. Before I try to give uh, answers today to these questions, let me tell you what the true answers are <laughs> to these uh, three questions. Uh, all right. A quick look uh, at, um, at data, and I, I start with the with U.S. data. Uh, one of the reasons for that is that uh, the, the U.S. is widely acknowledged to be the pivotal country in this recession. Also, you know, the truth is that, uh, as, as, as uh, Tim just said, uh, all countries look fairly similar during this recession. And the third reason is that the uh, Bank of England's uh, webpage with the data is almost unusable. So I just need to address that. Okay, so here, here, is a, um, here is a industrial production. This is a sort of a, a leading indicator of GDP or a proxy for GDP. Um, and what have I done here? I have I've picked uh, all the post-war recessions. Uh, and um, for, each for each recession, I have reset time, uh, the date at which the MBR officially dates the beginning of that recession. 
Um, and then, so on the horizontal axis, you have months beginning from the date at which the MBR places the beginning of the recession. And on the vertical axis, I have industrial production here normalized to be one on the month of the peak. Okay, so this is the picture with, uh, and of course, the, the current recession, the recession that started in December 2007, according to the MBR, is the one with the dots. Uh, so this, you can look at this picture, but there, another thing you can do, which makes it easier to look at this picture, is to average across all the other recessions. So compare just the average of all the other recessions to the current recession, and that's what you, what you uh, do when you get that. So the blue line now is the average of all the 10 recessions other than the current recession, and the brown uh, line is the current recession. So if you look at this picture and you look, uh, uh, you know, we are, we are now uh, more than one year into the recession according to the MBR. If you look at the cumulative loss in industrial production, it kind of looks like a standard recession. It does, it look, in fact, it looks almost, almost to the, uh, on the dot, uh, just a, a run-of-the-mill typical recession that we have had since World War II. Of course, what, what makes this recession uh, special and different is the kink. Um, in the summer of 2008, around August or September, you get this massive drop, this kink, uh, where the recession is sort of gradual and slow um, and, and sort of innocuous looking until the summer, and then suddenly things, uh, things collapse uh, all, all of a sudden. Now, this kink feature of the recession is, is actually very common across other series you can look at. This is the unemployment rate. Again, it goes up uh, slowly in the beginning, and then there is a the kink, and it goes down faster. Um, industrial production, oh, I'm sorry, I'm going, I'm going back. This is uh, weekly hours. You can see a, a kink there. Uh, this is the scariest picture uh, of all. This is civilian employment. You can see we are, we, are, you know, we started out uh, um, uh, with a sort of standard, uh, typical uh, rate of uh, declining employment, and then suddenly we are falling off the cliff, uh, starting in the summer in the summer. Um, this is another amazing picture. This is the um, purchasing managers index. You, you can sort of think about this as a measure of, of, of confidence uh, by, by managers. These guys are completely unconcerned uh, up to well into the summer, and then suddenly uh, things, uh, things collapse again. Uh, and finally, this is consumption. Consumption, in fact, continues to increase for a while during the recession, and then uh, again the kink and the collapse. Okay, so to come back to my original question, is this a special recession? If you look at this since inception of the crisis, you will say no. I mean, cumulative losses are not particularly out of line one year and a few months out um, of the beginning of the previous peak. Uh, but since the summer, yes, there has definitely been an acceleration, a falling off of things uh, rather dramatic. Uh, of course, you know, in economics, we should always be careful about drawing big conclusions for a few data points, and I think this case is not an exception. You know, the kink and the fall off is just a matter of four or five months, so we should be cautious in concluding from this that this is a uh, sort of once-in-a-lifetime event, but, but clearly it does, it does look like especially uh, uh, indifferent. So now let's think about uh, explanations for, for this uh, Mechanism, and I, I don't know what um, I, I, there is surprisingly little sort of post mortem or, or explanations of why the exact mechanism of the recession. So, but I think a lot of people would sort of agree that some of the elements of the, um, of the explanation for the recession are the following. You start out with a um, housing price bubble that, that collapses, and, and it collapses because bubbles have to collapse at some point. So not, not, not a particular mystery there. Uh, what, is, what is more surprising, perhaps, is uh, how exposed, how deeply 
had the banks bought into the bubble. That's really something that, uh, you know, is, is astonishing. How, how much the banks were exposed to the bubble, that, that's, that's dramatic, but they were. And uh, to shore up their uh, balance sheet in the face of the massive losses they're making as a consequence of the collapse of the bubble, they cut uh, lending to consumers and firms. Uh, so you now have uh, credit-constrained consumers, credit-constrained firms, and so uh, consumption and investment decline as, uh, as people cannot get access to the, the credit they need to uh, engage in consumption and investment. Um, because consumption and investment demand fall, firms are forced to uh, lay, out, uh, uh, lay off workers. The decline in employment causes further decline in consumption and so on and so forth in a typical spiral uh, that gives you a recession. So I think these, you know, these elements are there. I'm not saying anything new, uh, and they're probably uh, right there. But when I think about this story, I feel that this somehow uh, does not feel enough. It doesn't feel enough particularly to explain the kink and the, and the massive uh, fall off uh, uh, since the summer of 2008. I feel that this story makes for a gradual perhaps a more standard recession. It doesn't make for a once-in-a-lifetime event where things suddenly fall, fall off, a, off a cliff. So I think, and again, I'm saying, I don't think I'm saying anything particularly new, I think the key ingredient that is, is, you, you need to bring in to, uh, to start thinking about why things can suddenly take this massive turn for the worse um, in this otherwise fairly standard story that I, I've told is just massive fear, massive panic uh, about the uh, future um, that uh, hits not only credit-constrained individuals as in the previous story, but also non-credit-constrained individuals. Just this massive pessimism and concerns about the future. And if that element is there, then there is a, a clear sense that we might be in a situation where self-fulfilling elements are playing an important role, where people stop consuming because they think things are going to go worse, and because they think, uh, people stop consuming, then things indeed uh, get worse. So a, a classic case of animal spirit leading to a self-fulfilling crisis seems to, to me at least, uh, and, and I, I think from what I can tell to many others, seems to be an important part, especially to understand uh, why things can suddenly take such a uh, a brutal uh, turn for the worse, the, what I call the kink in, the, in, my, um, in my things. Uh, in, so in, in, multiple equilibrium, in multiple equilibrium model driven by expectations, that's exactly what you have. You have a sudden shift from one equilibrium to the other, which looks like falling off a, a cliff the way we, we see in the data. Now, then the obviously the question is why uh, would this recession in particular um, feature such a, 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 a stra stark, striking, and dramatic uh, loss of confidence. I, I have no idea what the answer to that is, is but uh, I, mean, I can make uh, conjectures. One, one conjecture is that the, the, because the uh, crisis also invests the financial sector in such an important way, um, then may, and, and the financial sector is so visible, and it's a source of such uh, striking numbers on a day-to-day -day basis, um, this high visibility of the financial sector might be uh, a source of mood music uh, that uh, sort of worsens the, the psychological, emotional climate in the country. So, I mean, like in, in horror movies, uh, you know, 50% of the fear comes from the music. Uh, when, when <laughs> and and uh, I, I kind of get the sense that financial sectors are providing this very, very scary mood, mood music with 20% you know, declines, 30% declines of stock market valuations in very little time. So this, this kind of, I can see how that, um, that constant uh, barrage of bad news from a particular sector can, uh, can sort of contribute to make people very, very upset. Uh, but I also would say that um, 
what what I, what I what I thought was uh, I, I I haven't lived through many many recessions, but I, I lived through some. And what, what strikes me is that the statements you hear from financial analysts and policymakers are just extraordinary, extraordinarily negative. I mean, when you have a Fed chairman who goes to the Senate and says, "If you don't do this, there's not going to be an economy on Monday," and, and that's, that, that's extraordinary. That's a, an extraordinarily negative message. And I, even President Obama, if you think about his inauguration message, it wasn't very upbeat at all. It was like, look, this is going to be very tough, very long, very difficult. It's not the kind of message that uh, contributes to create a climate of optimist, optimism and perhaps help us coordinating back towards the good equilibrium. So and that sort of leads me to my conclusions and, and the comments on the policy response. Of course, there has been massive monetary stimulus, as Tim has said. Um, fiscal stimulus is, is in, in the works, uh, and also, of course, policies to restore financial sector stability. I've, I have some thoughts about these things that I hope I have a chance to talk about later. But I think what, uh, what I haven't seen, I, of course, I'm asking something very difficult here, but, but what, what seems not to be there at all is uh, some kind of uh, I, uh, some idea or some attempts to uh, try to uh, improve the quality of the music that, uh, that, that poli policymakers are sending out. So try to uh, improve the, the confidence through other means other than these uh, uh, massive policies. So, I mean, I, for one thing, I haven't seen anyone trying to articulate the uh, animal spirit view, that, that this, this may be, the, you know, there's a component of coordination failure in what's going on, so let's try not to, not to panic, let's try to uh, get, be more rational about this. Uh, so there is, a lot of, there is a lot of mentions of the New Deal and FDR, um, but one of the things, particularly, particularly in relation to the fiscal policy uh, of the New Deal and FDR, but, there is much, but FDR, another thing that he did, he was, you know, prep to, pep talk. Pep talk, pep talk, pep talk on a daily basis. You know, the, the famous sentence, uh, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, is part of articulating the animal spirit's view uh, of the recession. And I, I don't see that happening. Um, of course, you know, there is a political risk uh, of doing that. You know, you could argue that John McCain lost his election by saying that the economy is fundamentally sound. Uh, but, you know, uh, <laughs> But you know, may, maybe this kind of maybe maybe you know this this was just the last heroic uh, thing that John McCain did uh, in, in his career. You know, try to say, uh, okay, fine. You know, if you don't want to elect me, don't elect me. But you know, I'm not going to let you brood in this uh, in this negative. <laughs> so I just to conclude, you know, there is, so Keynes is, is very central to the current uh, discussions, and that's all because of the fiscal policy. But Keynes is the guy of animal spirits, and and that part of Keynes, I think, should should play a bigger role in thinking about how to get out of the crisis. Okay, now there is a switch to the labor market, and um, I'm using British data throughout. I've been here long enough, unlike Francesco, to know that if you want good British data, you don't look at the Bank of England website, you look at the ONS website. <laughs> Let that be a lesson. Um, okay, the, the, the labor market implications of, um, of the credit crunch. Now, what, what happens to labor in a recession, to the labor market in a recession? Usually what happens is that lots of jobs are destroyed, unemployment, the flow into unemployment increases, unemployment goes up, Job creation goes down afterwards. Firms don't open enough job vacancies, and that prolongs the unemployment spell. So we get an increase in the duration of unemployment, 
long-term unemployment builds up, and that introduces persistence into labor markets, as our chairman here has, uh, has demonstrated in uh, the last 20 years, maybe. Um, and then eventually, output picks up when we're coming out of recession, but unemployment is slower to react. So that's a kind of, it, it's a kind of blueprint. It's, it's what Francesco called the representative recession. This is what happens in Britain or Europe, throughout Europe, in fact, when there is a recession. Now, is, is this recession conforming? In other words, is this recession special? Now, this is, this is completely independently that we ask the same question. I'm, Francesco knows about the labor market, but I'm asking about the labor market. Now, the scenario that I just described was most emphatic in the early 1980s recession. There are some signs that this recession is following a similar pattern, but at a much lower scale than in, than in the 1980s. Um, for example, from early 2008, redundancies have gone up sharply, but un unemployment though is picking up very slowly compared with the experience we had in the 1980s. And the output impact of the change in um, employment and unemployment seems to be minimal. Now, the, these are my views of why that's happened. And after this slide, I'm just going to show you some data, some graphs that hopefully will convince you that these views are right. But they are speculative. Um, I think that despite the, the early signs of recession, this current recession will not hit the labor market badly because of the reforms of the 1980s and the 1990s. In particular, the decline of union power, the reform of the unemployment insurance system, to the switch to the job seekers allowance, the more strict supervision of benefit rules that is now um, implemented by the government, all those will bring wage moderation and they will not allow the big increase in long-term unemployment. So things in the labor market will not be too bad in this recession. I can show you some um, graphs why that's the case. This is the UK unemployment rate. You can see what happened after 79 when the economy got hit by a massive uh, aggregate demand shock. Unemployment shot up from something like 5% to 10% within two years. In fact, the first year reaction was from 5 to 6, then from 6 to 9, and so on. Look what happened in 2007, 2008. It's something that you can even um, ignore as any kind of movement. You know, it looks like the little wiggle you get when there are errors in the data. <coughs> redundancy rates, however, are up. So what I've just shown you is despite a sharp rise in redundancies, uh, these, these are the rate of redundancies, is the number of redundant workers as a percentage, or per thousand, rather, of the previous um, quarter employment. It, it's, not, it, it's a big increase in percentage terms, but it's not, it's not a very large number of workers. But there is an increase in redundancies. Um, but the unemployment response is small whichever way you look at it. Here I've, I've shown you unemployment in a bigger scale since 92, separately from men and women. Men are always blue and women pink, by the way, in my diagrams. <laughs> uh, there is a small rise in unemployment after 2008, but you know, I mean, compare, compare that rise with what happened between 2004 and 2006, it's more or less the same. And there is no comparison with what happened between say 93 and 2000 to unemployment. I hope you don't call me Dr. Pangloss at the end of this, <laughs> anyway. Um, employment rates are falling, but only marginally. Again, th this is the female employment rate. You can see that it started at something like 49% of the population in 1992. 
it went up to about 53, 54, and that's where it still is. A small fall, but not as big as, um, as it was two or three years ago when we didn't have a recession. And a little bit of a bigger fall in the male employment rate. But uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, maybe if you compare with what happened between 2000 and 2007, you might worry about the one percentage point fall. But it's pretty small. I mean, there's no, you know, we're nowhere near where we were in 93, in the recession of 92, 93, for example. And there's absolutely no comparison with where we were in the <coughs> early 80s. <coughs> now, things might get worse because um, hiring of workers will fall because of this fall in vacancies. But again, if you look at the um, mean value for vacancies in the economy, which was about 2.4% of employment, we're now down to 1.9. It's, it's not a big deal. You know, the point is that there are vacancies being open. I don't know if you read, I don't know if you read Metro in the morning when you're coming into work, but for example, the front page news was that uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken and McDonald's will open lots more jobs because people are switching from uh, the more capital intensive expensive restaurants to the cheaper labor intensive fast food restaurants. So here's a growth sector. Um, so, you know, some hiring might fall, but not that much. Um, the beverage curve, which is the relation between vacancies and unemployment, is shifting a little bit out. This is always happens in recession, but the shift, again, is not nearly what it was before, and I suspect that the shift here is due to redundancies, and it will very soon come back again, the relation between vacancies and unemployment. There is nothing there to tell us that unemployment is going up. Uh, at constant vacancies rate, which is what was happening in the 1980s when there was a lot of uh, long-term unemployment, a lot of discouragement by workers, a lot of disenfranchising of workers. We don't seem to be uh, uh, observing that kind of change in the labor market now. Um, the relation between unemployment and long-term unemployment is very tight in, in, in the economy throughout. In fact, here, I, I don't know, you know, I'm sure a statistician will say that these things are not significant, but there is some evidence that, that things are different now, they are better now. That if you look at the years 2006, 7, and 8, unemployment is going up, but long-term unemployment is not going up. And the serious problems with um, unemployment is when long-term unemployment is going up, you know, when people are staying out of work for more than 12 months. But that doesn't seem to be a feature of the current recession. In fact, there's nothing unusual but there's nothing unusual about the current recession if you look at this diagram as a whole. And there's something better if you plot the last three years, which is what I did here. <coughs> and here is another graph that shows you that long-term unemployment has come down since 93 quite substantially. For men from 50% um, to 30%, women from just over 30 to 20. And it seems to be still there. This is a real race through statistics. Okay, the UK, now here's the UK comparing with other countries. The UK is not doing too badly on employment, the change in unemployment rather, year on year, uh, during 2008. Now remember that the, that the UK was hit by recession at about the same time as, um, as the United States, so early, early 2008. Uh, but the change in the UK unemployment is about the same as the Eurozone. It's better than in the US. Uh, substantially better than the U.S., in fact, when it comes to employment. And um, 
It's, it's about the same as in the other countries. The countries that are faring worse are um, well, Spain, which is, which is quite an interesting uh, country when studying these things because the Spanish introduced lots of um, uh, fixed-term contracts to get people into work. But of course, the implication of fixed-term contracts is that, uh, you, is that you cannot be, they cannot be renewed easily enough, which pushes unemployment up very quickly. The other countries, I don't know, they're more or less there. The, only, the interesting comparison is between UK and US here, here however. So can we reach a conclusion? Well, it's a recession. Um, it's not a bad one for labor. Internationally, the UK is not worse off than comparable countries. Eurozone is still, is still to show worse. No, what I mean is that the Eurozone will, think, conditions in the Eurozone will become worse because of rigidities that slow down uh, the response. Uh, the, UK, the UK doesn't suffer from as many rigidities, so it went into recession faster, but I expect the UK to recover faster as well from the current recession. Thank you. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to, even though I don't have any official rules about whether I should read from a script, I'm going to try and do so because I'm afraid I disagree sufficiently with the other panelists that you see this evening, both in emphasis and in content, that unless I have something to hang on to, I might, uh, I might say things a little bit wilder than I should. <laughs> the, my one large difference is that I think that the only way to think about the current situation is that it is a global economic crisis. It is not sufficient to study just the US or the UK, and it is not sufficient to think about the world either as passively responding to the United States or being synchronized or not synchronized with the United States. I think the economic situation that we find ourselves in is a global one, and unless we think through these global implications, we will not come out of this well. Now, of course, many, uh, it is, many agree the world economy as a whole shows yet little sign of recovery. People who study the global economy think that the, the world is in a much worse state than I think uh, we're able to address when we ask how typical is the current recession. Many analysts now silently agree that the economic downturn around us carries features that are larger than any single national policymaker can comfortably deal with. So many observers also believe that global macro imbalances, international relations and geopolitics, together with microeconomic irresponsible behavior and bad judgment have landed us in this mess. The deep cause and critical fault lines of these global imbalances remain in dispute. But my view is that unless we resolve those, no longer term global solution is going to be sustainable. And so any short-term solution we come up with will simply store up problems for an even larger crash in the near future. 
What is this view of global imbalances? Well, the conventional view is that, that you hear often repeated by many influential observers and very many important policymakers around us. And that view is the following. Over the last two decades, China and other rapidly growing economies in Asia undertook development and exchange rate policies that encouraged exports and raised domestic savings. The integration of those economies into the world's trade and financial systems brought about in mirror image high trade deficits and steep borrowing in richer developed economies like the US. Now in this telling of the story, we can deduce that high savings from the East caused borrowing and current account deficits elsewhere, that is capital flowed uphill from poorer countries to richer ones because world interest rates were low throughout the 1990s and early 2000s. Put this another way, the world economy confronted a global savings glut that was driven by, among other things, Asian thrift. And outside of Asia, the world's current account deficits and high borrowing were simply passively responding to market signals. In this interpretation, low world interest rates did more than just induce high borrowing in the US. Low global rates of return induced a so-called race for yield, where financial market participants were compelled to search for ever more creative high returns, overlooking how high returns obtain only with high risk. This creativity manifested in an explosion in the size of the financial sector as banks lent to other banks, dealing in progressively exotic financial instruments, the need for which was driven pretty much only by the internal dynamics of the financial sector itself. So unnoticed, this massive buildup replicated many times over the riskiness of the original outlays. Built on a superstructure of debt, house prices in country after country soared to historically unprecedented multiples of disposable incomes. Financial sector profits exploded upwards and the industrial structure of economies changed. When last year these multivariate chains unwound off of the US subprime mortgage market, the effect has been a dramatic 180 degree turnaround in the blind faith that previously held store in these financial transactions. Whereas before, financial instruments that were only dimly understood nonetheless transacted in billion dollar quantities, now party and counterparty face each other with a general lack of trust and confidence. And it is this that is causing unprecedented falls in GDP as goods and services are simply not being produced and traded. Now the story that I've just told you is a conventional story. I think there are many things attractive about this story on a gut level. And many things are probably even right about that picture. For one, the numerical facts are not in dispute. The US began from approximate trade balance in 1990. Over the next couple of decades, the US saw its current account explode into progressively larger deficit until by 2006, the US economy was consuming $900 billion more than it was producing. This trade deficit alone was as large as the total output of goods and services produced by the billion people economy that is India. 
Despite this massive borrowing on international capital markets, world interest rates and inflation rates were indeed low and falling throughout the 1990s and early 2000s. And the US did indeed see its trade deficits against China in particular and East Asia more generally exhibit exactly an identical time path as the overall US trade deficit, both in trend and in fluctuations. The East did accumulate capital reserves in exactly the pattern that the US needed to borrow. What's wrong with this picture then? Well, when you plot US bilateral trade accounts against China, yes, those figures mimic the US trade deficit overall. But does this mean that global imbalance due to China's economic policies, does this mean that global imbalance was driven by China's economic policies? Well, here's the difficulty, and here's why I think we need to understand this to formulate effective policy going forwards. When you graph US bilateral trade deficits against the European Union, they too mimic the US trade deficit. Indeed, when you plot US bilateral trade accounts against the oil exporting countries, again, they mimic the US trade deficit. When you add together European Union and oil exporter trade surpluses against the US, the result is a bilateral trade surplus that matches exactly dollar for dollar China's bilateral trade surplus against the US. The simple fact is the US has been massively over-consuming for the last two decades, borrowing on world capital markets, not in any special way relative to China or East Asia. Instead, the US has been doing this against pretty much everywhere in the world, with the possible exception of the UK. <laughs> so if the cause for global imbalance, the way we're gonna repair the current global economy is by meeting head-on Asian thrift, or by, as the new US Treasury Secretary refers to, it obliquely underpriced Chinese renminbi, then there must also have been EU thrift and oil exporter thrift, an underpriced European currency and underpriced oil. Now perhaps that was indeed the case, but a more parsimonious explanation is simply that US profligacy drove the entire constellation of global imbalances. And the US comparative advantage came to be in running large trade deficits. Where do we go forwards from here? Now in this roundup of a global economy view of the current crisis, I have not disagreed with the observation that much of the world's banking and financial systems are clogged and inoperative. I have, however, described what I think to be doubts on the root causes of global imbalances and therefore doubts on what policies we need to be thinking about going <coughs> forwards. What does this leave us on policy prescription? Three emerge and I will conclude on that. <coughs> First, there is no disagreement that much of the world's banking and financial systems need in Ken Rogoff's evocative language, need to be rebooted. Financial intermediation needs to resume. But just as in rebooting a modern computer system, <coughs> the virus, toxic debt in this case, needs to be isolated and excised. For otherwise, the system, when it comes up again, 
will simply be reinfected. In this view, a bad bank that combines all toxic assets, leaving the rest of the financial system clean for normal operations, seems to me a good idea. Alternatively, a so-called new bank that begins uninfected, starting with a clean slate, would also achieve the same purpose. Second, by all means, rebalance the global economy, but do so with an eye to fostering aggregate supply as much as you boost aggregate demand. The current paradox of policy is that while it is the massive amount of overextended debt that unwound sharply to generate the fear, uncertainty, and doubt that my colleague Francesco Caselli so well described for you, and that's currently incapacitating credit channels, many policy proposals currently on the table seek even more debt to finance fiscal stimuli. If surplus countries like China are being urged no longer to save, who will now buy US Treasury bills? Third, if excess savings in one part of the world, in this case, possibly China's, although I disagree with that view, if those are a problem for the global economy, recognize that those excess savings are national savings, not an individual's. Chinese consumers have savings rates not dramatically different from consumers elsewhere. Well, of course, except maybe the US consumer. Instead, it is the corporate sector and the government together in China that's providing the bulk of high savings in China. If a nation saves more because it confronts high national risk and insecurity, the situation is not helped by stoking yet greater perception of fear from external protectionist and alarmist rhetoric. Thank you. Well, four wonderful presentations, um, all very different, as I expected. Um, what we'll do now uh, is we'll take, uh, I think, six quick, snappy questions, and then I'll give the panelists all a chance to pick up any question they want to and disagree with each other, and then we'll have another round like the same. So who wants to start off? Why don't I pick some other hands? Put, put, put up some more hands. We'll get, okay, those two up there. Uh, somebody up there? There? Someone here? I would like to know oh, from the there. panel whether there was also a problem with economists not quite meeting the challenge. In the last 20 years, you have been busy proving that all business cycles are real and you know money doesn't matter and so on and so forth and that you're therefore perhaps a bit at a loss to explain what happened. I can only in that way explain why Francesco Caselli can say, oh, a bit of pep talk might work. Oh, yes, if people would say who they are. I've lost track of my order. Uh, yes, mainly a question to Professor Bestley, I think, given the policy lag of monetary policy and what we know today, what do you think the interest rate should have been in September 2007 and this date one year ago? 
let's have these two at the back. Yeah. Yeah, Alan Greenspan famously said that it's Could you say who you are? Yeah, sorry, Keith Raffin. Um, Alan Greenspan famously said that it's better to mop up after a bubble bursts than to prick the bubble. Uh, wouldn't it have been a wiser move between 2003 and 2008 not to have just addressed the consumer price index but the obvious overheating in the housing capital equity markets? And looking forward quickly to the G20, when we've got, uh, can we expect anything out of that at all? We've got uh, Sarkozy talking about remaking capitalism, Merkel talking about a World Economic Council, and Obama being, on the other hand, probably with us, much more cautious, talking about keeping a more watchful eye on the financial market. And, and the other person at the back there. Um, Professor Caselli, you have um, suggested that um, one, one, one problem with the current crisis is that is, is a massive lack of confidence caused by public figures um, not, not giving the public any confidence. And then one way to address this would be for public figures to give, to inspire more confidence. But one way to interpret this, this very unusual kink in the recession, wouldn't, one way to interpret this be that until summer, um, public figures have been exuding confidence in a rather irresponsible manner. And that um, one reason that um, all the indicators collapse so dramatically after this is that this trust was just so so, to so fundamentally destroyed that now there's a good reason people don't trust their mm, talk, talk hosts and um, talking points givers anymore. Uh, Gled Hill, University of Sydney. Uh, Fran Francesco uh, pointed out, uh, well, the role of fear in this whole thing that uh, might influence uh, events. I wonder if uh, we could have some comment on the role of media, because the media has changed in the last five years into a position that it hasn't been, not only talking about television, but internet, blogs, uh, the global access to different, uh, different newspapers, newsprints and so forth. I suspect that there may be a, an argument that that is having an accelerating effect on the whole process. It, it seems that uh, uh, debt has increased a lot in, in the US and UK economies. So if there is a, uh, an ex ex excess of, of public and private debt, um, wouldn't it be better to, um, is the solution, is a wise solution to increase uh, public debt even more, given that we have, it seems that we have a solvency problem with our economies? Uh, so uh, it wouldn't be better to let the economy just shrink and correct itself rather than increase debt even more? Right. Good questions and also good comments from uh, all the panelists already, which I want the panelists to comment on other panelists' comments if they want to. Uh, are you ready to? You can go in reverse. Reva he wants to reverse order. Okay. <laughs> he has to be more careful. Let me... <coughs> Let me leave aside the putative criticisms of my colleague Francesco Caselli because he's well placed to defend himself. Let me uh, take instead the. You are friends. <laughs> <laughs> I have, uh, since I've sparred with him intellectually, I know he will be up to the task. The, let me pick up on the question that someone said should interest rate policy or monetary policy have been different the last however many months? Remember the. 
policymakers and even economists have only the current best data that we have to work with. And even as, as uh, late as this last summer, in much of the developing world, the fear was still high inflation. Remember, as recently as last summer, oil prices were headed past $150 a barrel. Food prices were going through the roof. The US had embarked on a peculiar policy of diverting agricultural products, food for people, into making food for cars. Uh, there was, there was fear throughout much of the developing world that we were going to face shortages and ever-escalating prices. And confronted with that kind of environment, it takes a really very strong-willed policymaker or economist to say, well, let's worry about yet some other things on the horizon. I think that my reading of the historical record uh, is that monetary policymakers have actually done the best they could. There might have been uh, there might have been, we might have nitpicked with whether by focusing over excessively in practice or if, if not in, in name, the policy of inflation targeting to a point where we simply obsessed about the rate of inflation and not recognize the buildup of imbalances, whether internationally or in housing and financial markets. Now, I think those are, are issues that we need to pick through, but that takes a longer, longer term strategic thinking not off-the-cuff attempts to repair economic policy. Um, I don't know, if, I mean, if I take up the, um, the difficult question here on, on whether we've, um, we've gone too deep into real business cycles and ignored the rest of the world, well, I mean, you have to remember that economists react to events and, and understand them so that if they occur in the future, then we know how to deal with them. But we can't very easily predict nuance. I mean, the, the reason that there was the focus on real business cycles were the shocks of the 1970s that were real. So now we know how to deal with that problem, and that's why the gyrations in the oil price haven't caused any major recession, I, I don't think. Um, but now there is, a, but now there is a whole, a, a whole new area of research being born suddenly: how to study the interactions between the financial sector and uh, things like labor markets, in my case, which hasn't been done at all. So if any aspiring new PhD students want to work in that area, then there is scope for really, really good work in it. Um, and, and, and second, if I take out the question of the debt, I, 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 think, I think this whole issue of the size of the debt is, uh, is vastly uh, overemphasized. It, it doesn't really matter whether debt is 100% or 40%. Um, so if, uh, if fiscal expansion is going to uh, help uh, in um, getting us out of this recession fast, I would be all in favor of increasing public debt and, and not worry about any future uh, tax liability too much. The, the reason is that debt, debt can come down very quickly once the economy is expanding. Uh, so once we get into an expansion, it, it, it will come down and then if we um, follow, if, if the current recent history of fairly low interest rates carries on, debt, national debt is not, is not really a big issue. I mean, you know, on, on Greek, the debt went up from 20% to 120% and no one noticed anything. We still don't pay any taxes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
right, I, I want to touch on, on a few of the things that uh, came up. I'm always amazed when, when people start a sentence by saying, oh, you economists all say this or all, all do this. If you only knew how much we fight and disagree among ourselves, <laughs> I mean, you, you wouldn't say that. I think, I think describing uh, macro over the last 20 years as, as being solely concerned with the real business cycle is just a travesty. It's, it's just not the case. In fact, I think the overwhelming uh, uh, sort of framework to think about things over, over, over more recently has been one where clearly uh, monetary disturbances and demand side shocks play a very important role. If you look at, if you go to any central bank that has a decent uh, stochastic general equilibrium model of the economy uh, emanating from academia, that model will feature important role for monetary policy <coughs> shocks, demand shocks, credit shocks. So it's just not the case that um, over the last 20 years the, the only model was the RBC. Quite the opposite. I think that there's been a, in some sense a demise of the RBC view and, and uh, prevalence of the uh, or the more monetary thing. Um, however, you do have a point that, uh, and I completely agree with you, that there should be more emphasis on expectations and what, we, what I call animal spirits in my presentation. And here I call my students here as witnesses that every year uh, in the first year PhD program, I say that there should be more work on uh, animal spirits and expectations and coordination failures, and I began doing that uh, um, since 2004 when I started teaching here. So I, uh, I claim at least um, some intellectual consistency there. Uh, <clears throat> okay, now the second question is uh, was um, whether central banks kept uh, interest rates uh, uh, too high for too long. Uh, good question. Um, uh, <laughs> too, too low. Too, too high for too long. Okay. Um, um, the a question. So is is the is is the story that uh, policymakers have been too positive for too long? about the economy and that now they've destroyed their, their credibility. Well, if, if that was the case, then people wouldn't believe now that they say that everything's gonna be a disaster. So I, I'm not convinced that that's a, a, a com compelling story. <clears throat> but I do completely agree on the, uh, of the importance of information, the much more pervasive uh, reach of information and the globalization of information as potentially play an important role. And this brings me back to the issue of synchronization and, and global and the global nature. I mean, again, give me, give me my uh, uh, coordination failure, uh, multiple equilibria, animal spirit story. Well, certainly in a world where information flows very fast, opinions flow very fast, fear flows very fast from country to country, then you could have this falling off a cliff could be synchronized across country. You could have the whole world moving into this bad equilibrium simultaneously. So I think that's, uh, that's actually a, a sort of you know, proof, of course, very far from it, but I think it's consistent with this view that psychological factors are, are playing a very important role, um, both in the intensity of the recession and in its uh, spread around the world. Um, I, I, I actually um, am less sanguine than, than Chris uh, about uh, 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 public debt and the, and the wisdom of increasing public debt. Um, uh, you know, he's Greek, but I'm Italian, so. Uh, uh, <laughs> and, um, and there is a particular element. I mean, I, I think, you know, public debt today means future taxes, sooner or later, in one form or the other. If it's not uh, people actually paying taxes, it's going to be inflation or it's going to be default. So none of these scenarios is particularly appealing. Um, and there is a particular element that worries me a little bit. Uh, so there is, if there is one thing that we know for sure. Well, let me take it back. There's a thing that is, is highly likely, is that um, uh, fixing the banking system will cost an enormous amount of taxpayer money. 
And I mean, I think we're going through nationalization one way or the other. I think it's pretty clear that nationalization is in the cards. Uh, and that's going to be very expensive uh, fiscally and I should say also politically. Now I'm seeing that there's been a lot of effort, both political capital and future taxes, invested in a fiscal stimulus. Uh, and of course, on the margin, that will make the cost of the uh, fixing the financial system greater because we, you know, we are devoting all these resources to, uh, to the fiscal stimulus already. Now, if, um, if expectations and, uh, and, um, and, and, and psychological factors are playing such an important role in the recession, then I'm not completely convinced that the, fiscal, that the return to the fiscal stimulus will be that high. Uh, and uh, to the extent that it makes it harder uh, to, uh, to, to pay for and to pass uh, nationalization of banks in a speedy manner, I think actually there is a, there is a cost not only in the future but also in the, in the shorter term of getting the financial system to work better. I mean, I think uh, um, the, the Obama administration, for example, has already spent a lot of cap cap political capital to pass the fiscal stimulus. Now they're going to have to go uh, very soon uh, to ask for money for nationalization, I think not having done the fiscal stimulus might make it easier to pass the nationalization uh, quickly. Um, and finally, just one last point um, to come back to this global imbalances. Yes, global imbalances probably played an important role, but I think it's important to remember that the reason why we are in this mess is that there are a lot of banks in the West, including the US, which was running this big uh, uh, capital account deficit, uh, that have enormous uh, positions in very, very uh, now dodgy assets. So that's not, so the, the global imbalance story would be a story where all these dodgy assets are in China. They're not in China, they're in the US, that's the problem. I wish they were in China. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, thanks, thanks very much. Um, well, Danny already attempted the, uh, the what interest rates should have been a year ago question. I'm tempted not even to venture there. I would say, though, you know, we, I think Danny, the main point I think Danny made, and I want to emphasize, though, is that you know, policy occurs in real time. What you can't do as a policymaker is spend all your time looking in the rearview mirror and trying to anticipate what you would have done if you knew where you were now. That's an entirely fruitless exercise. You have to, you have to take a judgment call on the data as they're coming in in real time. And the judgment that we, we made, the judgment I made as a member of the committee a year ago, was the judgment I made based on the data we had at the time. Right or wrong, that's, that's how you have to behave as a policymaker. And I think what's really striking about this crisis is the data is coming in in, in ways sometimes surprising. Perhaps soon we'll be surprised with some data on the upside. Data's coming in on the downside or upside. And your job as a policymaker is to interpret that coming in in real time and trying to do your best to to see what that's telling you about what you should do and what the state of the economy should be. So I, you know, I, I don't think, uh, I, I'm, I think we should be realistic about, about, about the, the policy process. I want to respond a little bit to the, to the mop-up question that came from, from up, up there. I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly true that, that I think relatively few people now um, would subscribe to the view that uh, there aren't uh, instruments that could be devised to deal with some of the imbalances uh, in, uh, in, in lending and other areas uh, moving forward, and they should be thought, of, thought about. Um, but the thing I, th I, I want to emphasize is something I just said in my remarks, is they have to be the right instruments. And, you know, the idea that we would use the short-term policy rate that's, that, that's, that's we use to target inflation to try and deal with the big problems of indebtedness or financing issues in banks. That's not the instrument. The instrument we should look for is the right regulatory instrument for that task. And I, I believe once all is said and done, 
uh, there will be a review of the, the instruments that are available to policymakers. And I think dynamic provisioning of capital requirements is something people are looking at and debating. One thing I want to point out, though, is that, uh, that Spain, which is a country that has dynamic provisioning and some of its banks have benefited from that, is a country that, if, if you saw in the data and look across the board, is suffering a, a macro crisis of greater magnitude than the UK right now. So I think, again, it's simplistic to say if only we got some better dynamic provisioning in our banking system, we would have been in a globalized banking system where, people from, where banks from abroad can lend in your market. It's simply impossible to be immune from the consequences of global financial regulation. So what any one country can do to deal with financial problems in its boundaries is limited in a world of open capital markets. Um, I think the sort of whole idea we're going to reinvent capitalism in the next two months is a wonderful one, but I don't think anybody thinks that that's a, you know, I think there are going to be some big debates about responsibilities of different uh, institutions in, in the economy. But, you know, I think it's, it's fair, fair to say that, that this, uh, this episode has brought hyperbole of, of many kinds and, and, and sort of pretending that we've kind of got, got in short order to redraw every rule of, of politics and economics that we think we've come to understand, I think is a hasty overreaction. But let me join that up to the comment about economists meeting the challenge, because I do think it's something where, quite rightly, um, those of us, I mean, I've been in the economics profession for around 20 years now, rightly ask ourselves questions. What is it that you know, maybe our discipline was short on? I think I agree one thing with, with something that Francesco has been underlining, which is that you know, having a better appreciation of the underlying model of psychology and expectations is something economists have always felt they needed. Um, and it's not, it's not a new idea. Uh, and you know, there is progress being made within our discipline about merging ideas from psychology into economics, and perhaps that's the key. But we've got to be realistic. These are projects that are, that are, that are, that are not, you know, an academic discipline involves and it involves in response to events. And perhaps the most important papers, this is sad but true, will be written on this crisis in the next two to five years. Um, the best papers on the Great Depression, I can assure you, were written many, many years after the Great Depression occurred. And perhaps we have a, now a good intellectual understanding of that. That's just sad but true, that academic research works on the basis of retrospective data and, and tries to learn the best lessons from it. And I, that, that kind of joins up to my comment about real-time real policymaking. Let me one final comment, uh, and something I perhaps should have, should have mentioned in my remarks. I think there's an issue around the period of stability that we uh, experienced prior to this crisis, um, being kind of key to, uh, to thinking through this, thinking through many of the issues. You know, I, I remember on September the I think it was 14th. It was my birthday, actually, so I do remember it. <laughs> it was the day the Northern Rock thing broke, and the Bank of England had a conference on the great stability, uh, which was a retrospective on the last 10 years of macro uh, policy around the world. And it was a legitimate conference, and it was a legitimate issue at that time. People were debating the question of why we'd had this remarkable period of economic stability. And many, many expectations were raised around that. You know, there, was a, there were kind of an end-of-history crowd out there who said, this is the all-conquering policy framework that's going to deal with every conceivable problem that we'll have. And I think the loss of confidence in that context is, is, is interesting because you know, we, 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 we learn that the world we're in has still the ability to surprise us and to deal with some very difficult situations. So around that, I think you know, what we're learning is that we should never take periods of stability for granted. And it's very difficult, though, to, in a period of stability, start uh, 
identifying all manner of problems. Most of the people who were pointing to major problems in the global economy during this period of stability were marginalized. They were marginalized, I think, for perfectly understandable reasons, um, because the evidence was that the economy, the, the global economy, was in a low inflationary, low inflation expansionary phase. Huge increase in globalization. Poverty reduction rates in the developing world we've just not seen historically. So it wasn't surprising, I think, if we're realistic about it, that people felt this was a, a golden age that would continue. And I think we've learned rather harshly that we can't take these things for granted. Well, thank, thank you all very much. Can I just have yes. a quick postscript? Yeah. I think that you know, now more than ever, we need to uh, keep from the, the rhetoric about what is misleading in policy discussions out there. And we need to look through to what the underlying issues are. For instance, take this statement about it is going to be very expensive to fix the banking system. I think that no one in their right mind should be thinking about fixing the banking system right now. What we should be thinking about is what did we need the banking system for? We want channels of credit to be unclogged. We want there to be trust and faith in financial transactions. If the, financial, if the banking system doesn't provide that, let's do away with the banking system. But it is the credits of, it is the channels of credit that matter. It is not the banks themselves that do. And focusing on how the banking system is gonna cost us $4 trillion to fix, is just not the right kind of thinking. I agree that, you know, the, I, I don't agree that we should have all our bad banks in China. <laughs> I, I have traveled, I have lived in different parts of the world to a point where I no longer have a country. So I cannot claim to be either Greek or Italian and wish that some other part of the world take the, the, the brunt of this. But I do think, nonetheless, we have to point fingers at the United States. The low world interest rates that the last, you know, last however many years of great stability brought could well have financed investment in green renewable technologies. It could have upgraded the internet. It could have provided more funding for research and higher education. It could have improved healthcare provision. Instead, we did none of that. We went in for extreme financial engineering and sky-high financial leveraging. And as Francesco says, that is something that happened in the United States. That came hand in hand with low interest rates. Neither was single-handedly responsible for the crisis that we're in. Right, thank you. So we'll now have another round of uh, six questions. Uh, one up there, or two up, two up there, uh, one at the back, uh, one here, one there, one there. Here. Thank you. Uh, um, my name is Amar Shangavi. I'm an MSc Econ student. Um, referring to uh, Professor Denny Kwa, Tim. Professor Tim Besley as well, who later on mentioned a little bit more of so regulation. Let, let, can I just interrupt you a second? Um, we will finish at 8 o'clock. So I think it would be helpful if people who have to go, go now. Otherwise, let's all stay till 8 o'clock. Okay. Can, could you start again? Yes. Uh, I'm referring to the final points, especially uh, Professor Danny Kwa made on uh, how there there's no need to reinvent the banking system um, because its core goal is to provide credit to the real economy and not, not the financial engineering. So do you think more regulation, 
that de defines the role of the banking system appropriately so that we can ensure that if there are uh, leakages in the other parts of the economy, they do not affect our real side. Uh, that would be an area of focus for future. Thank you. Robert Wade. Um, this question really follows up from the last one and follows on from remarks of Danny Kwa. Um, the question is, does anyone on the panel agree that um, commercial, the big commercial banks should be retained in public ownership going forward on grounds that the combination of um, private profit-seeking banks plus the internet, which communicates waves of pessimism and optimism instantly around the world, makes inherently for unstable capitalism and that no amount of regulation, however good, however sound, is going to um, overcome the ability of the internet to communicate these waves of pessimism and optimism when driven by private profit seeking. Therefore, nationalization is a long-term solution for commercial banking. Um, Professor Besley, taking the stance that um, we probably, as Francesco Caselli said, agree that the housing bubble has caused um, a great part of the turmoil, and also taking the stance that Danny Qua said that low interest rates have contributed to this um, situation we're in, would you embrace an inflation index which doesn't solely concentrate on consumer prices, but also takes into account asset prices such as stocks and such as houses? Because if we look in retrospective, that probably could have led to interest rates being higher when house prices and um, share prices went up. And that probably would have led to um, a smaller bubble in the housing um, sector and uh, higher interest rates, which could have probably alleviated the problem uh, in a great deal. Thank you. Thomas Skilbeck. I'd like to ask the panel whether or not they consider that the shooting of Admiral Bing on his quarterdeck in the Seven Years' War <laughs> was a successful policy which should be followed now. And whether or not, this is important, and whether or not to return confidence, a catharsis of individuals at the top is a necessary factor as well as replacing the systems. Um, yeah, no. uh, David Millican from Reuters. Um, a question primarily for Professor Besley. Can you speak up? Um, yes, uh, David Millikan from Reuters. A question primarily for Professor Besley. Um, there was a letter written into the Financial Times today from a visiting academic at the LSE who was suggesting that the Bank of England, if it were to pursue a policy of quantitative easing, would be better to purchase securitized portfolios of new mortgages or new consumer loans as a way of sort of forcing banks to lend more direct to the public rather than sort of purchasing portfolios of government debt, for example, which banks might just use to deleverage. And so I'd be interested in your opinions on that. Uh, my question is for Danny Kwa as well, Scott Heeson. Um, just on your statement, uh, I guess I, I'd like to question the uh, what what contribution statements like uh, the United States is is pretty much the problem here. Um, 
uh, frankly and seriously. Uh, using, I mean, when, when you, you started off your discussion saying that, you know, you take a much more global approach and, and you're frustrated with a number of these, uh, I guess, uh, what you perceive to be leaving things out. But, I mean, I, and, and I think these kind of mass generalizations uh, produce results like talking about the current account in Western Europe as though it's somehow uh, homogeneous throughout the countries. Whereas if you take a serious look and, and, and do some research, you'll notice that Germany has a substantial, and even just to contrast those types of things. Additionally, your comments suggest that the Chinese-U.S. relationship is the U.S.'s largest trade relationship, whereas we all know in the room here that it's, it's Canada and the U.S. that has the largest trading relationship with the United States. Uh, my, com my question is, what is it that these types of comments that you made, how does that help the process? And I would, and I would, I would ask, Particularly, if you're going to make these types of comments, why don't we then ask the question about China's role in financing a lot of these securities that were obviously negative, and, and if you take a, a look at the returns as being negative eight on a year-over-year -year basis. Uh, it, this is a complicated situation. These are complicated markets. I don't think, it, uh, I don't think it's necessarily these broad sweeping generalizations that provide any s solutions to the problem. Okay, um, I'm going to ask the sixth question. <laughs> um, I, I, I think uh, I'm pretty struck by the Martin Wolf analysis that the situation is extremely serious and that we've been over-optimistic in the last 12 months so that to have talked uh, more cheerfully would, be, would have been whistling in the wind um, and quite dangerous. Um, given the problem that we have, is it, is it right to say and the fact that drastic measures are probably needed in every country more than what we've yet done and will prove to be needed in every country more than what we've yet done is it in some sense helpful that everyone's in the same boat uh, or is that uh, looking at it from the point of view of one country uh, a disadvantage or an advantage because normally we say it's very difficult for a country to do something drastic when others are, are not in trouble um, because it will suffer a collapse of its exchange rate and it will become a, a, a some, sort, some sort of a, a pariah. But um, if everybody's in the same boat, does this, should this make one in some sense more optimistic about the recovery or less optimistic? Okay, should Can we, we go your, that way? Yeah. Okay, fine. Um, question about regulation. I think most people think it's, and I, I'm just spouting the mantra here, but it's sort of sensible, is it's smart regulation, not more regulation. Um, that, you know, that there, are, there is going to be fresh, a fresh look at regulation in financial markets, but I don't think the idea that it just has to be more boxes to tick or a larger uh, volume of legislated rules that we're looking towards. It's making sure those rules have well-defined objectives and the competences to fulfill those objectives. And I think once the dust settles, hopefully that's where we'll be. On Robert's question, the answer is no. I don't agree with you, Robert. Um, but I'm glad you're bringing the issue to the table. No, I never do. But the, I'm glad you're bringing. No, but there's a serious side. I mean, these are the kind of debates that should be had. So I mean, you know, you, you need to get these debates going. I mean, I personally don't think we're at a point where I can agree with you. But but it, it is important to debate these issues. I think the let's come back to housing because it's sometimes suggested 
that the issue of that of, of, of um, well, and asset markets more generally, is that if only we sort of had the right measure of inflation, none of these issues would have occurred. But I think again, it goes to the question, and, and it, it may be true that, and indeed it is true, that um, housing costs are poorly measured in the measures of price indices that central banks are typically asked to monitor from the inflation point of view. But I think it's, a, it's not a, an adequate step from there to say that just by bringing in a better measure of housing costs or anything else, somehow this would have all happened. If there are market failures in credit markets that are causing these issues or externalities between financial institutions, which means they don't recognize what they're doing has an implication, systemic implication for the economy, that needs to be dealt with at source. <coughs> It's not simply an issue if only we had the right price index, all this would be. So I think, I think it's just too simplistic to think that this is a problem, that if we had the right price index, all these problems would go away. Could we have a better price index that reflects housing costs in a, in a better way? Well, surely the answer is we should work on that. But I don't think it's, it follows from that that these problems just, just follow from uh, tracking the wrong, the wrong index. Um, the first, first question on quantitative easing, um, which sadly I'm not really going to answer because you're going to hear a lot about what the bank is thinking. We are having a number of discussions. Uh, what the governor said at the press conference, the inflation report press conference, I think made clear that this is a direction of, of debate. But you're going to hear, and uh, I promise all of you, you will hear more about this in, 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 in the future before we engage in, 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 in such activities, if indeed we do. Um, so, but I, I don't want to be specific or discuss specifics of the discussions that we're having at the current point. It would be inappropriate before we communicate this to markets and to others who are interested in, 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 in an orderly fashion. Um, then finally to sort of Richard's um, um, question about sort of it, does it all make, make it more likely that we'll solve this? You know, it, it comes to the last point I made in my comments. I mean, historically, major events have been huge opportunities for addressing major policy reform questions. And the fact now that the world is so focused on these issues surely does create opportunity to have the kind of coordinated global policy response that might be necessary in the sort of situation we're in. Um, but you know, it will expose the issues we kind of known about all along though. The weakness of global governance institutions to actually engineer these cross-country solutions and to implement them, that's, not, that's still an issue. Even though many people have recognized it for a long time, we do not yet have a set of global institutions that can implement this. We, are get, we have meetings with G7, G20, and so forth, and they're very useful, but, but the, the structures in place for cross-country cooperation are still quite limited. But I do think that what is clear is that policymakers around the world are perhaps talking to each other much more than, uh, than, than they've, they've needed to in the prior period. Um, and, and, uh, uh, I, I, but more broadly, I think it is out of um, very difficult circumstances that opportunities to make significant policy uh, improvements arise. I just address very quickly uh, Robert Wade's question on uh, um, nationalization, permanent nationalization. I will astonish you by telling you that I disagree with that um, uh, with, with the statement that uh, banks should be in, pub in uh, public property. Um, you know, I think uh, even if we accept um, the uh, premise that uh, publicly owned banks would not have uh, bought into the various bubbles that they've developed in the last years, which is an unproven proposition, but even if you accept the proposition, 
Um, what that suggests is that, okay, there is a cost to private ownership, maybe it makes the system more volatile, so it makes for cyclical shocks. But what is cr critical to, to know, and, and Robert Wade <laughs> knows it very perfectly well, is that, you know, the, in the long run, you know, it's, it's much more important, long, long run growth is, is a much more first order issue than smoothing out cyclical fluctuations, much, much first order. And in the long run, um, national state-owned banks make for corruption, they make for misallocation of capital, they make for cronism, they make for all sorts of pathologies that uh, have uh, a t terrible effect on long-run performance of countries. I mean, so I think we, we don't want to uh, take any chance with um, jeopardizing the, the long-run benefits of private markets uh, to just uh, smooth a little bit more the cycle. Yeah, now, now on the issue of regulation, the very first question that was asked, we're, we're obviously going to need more regulation because we saw the um, mess that which the, the banking system got itself into without regulation. What, what the regulation is going to be, though, I, I have no idea. Um, the only thing I know is that, um, is that public ownership is not going to do it um, because you, you either have public ownership the way Francesco has just described, where, where public employees are running it and they become corrupt, or if you are going to operate the uh, banks in a profit-maximizing way, the way nationalized industries were being operated um, at some point here, then then I can't see how public ownership of the equity of the bank is going to help in any way, uh, in any way better than private ownership. So I, I can't really see any benefits of public ownership, and I can see many risks, which would, which is what Francesco has just said. Now, designing a better inflation in, uh, inflation index, I, I, I don't think so either. I mean, I, I, I agree with Tim on that. Um, I mean, obviously, what we need is information, but there's no point in putting all the information into a single index and then targeting that index. You know, you, you can give the policymakers five different indices, one or even more. One might be an asset price index, the other a housing price index, the other a consumer price index, and then they can decide what to target and what to respond to. I, I can't see any benefits to aggregating everything in, in, into a single uh, index. And, um, and uh, well, well penultimate, it, it is helpful to make remarks about being a US problem. Well, well, you know, obviously not. I mean, it's not something. But, but the point is that, um, is that the US is the leading economy in the world, and, and it needs to take leadership in, in, in putting this right somehow and, and many of the problems that are affecting us over here were uh, sort of started there in a way so it, uh, I mean it does have a, a main role to play it, it did have a main role in bringing about a, a global recession and it does have a major role in, in setting it right but I agree with you it's not only a US problem it's also a, a China problem in the way they did things, and, and it's also a European problem, because after all, it's the Europeans who were buying all those assets and storing them up in their portfolios, and they should have been a little bit more careful. Um, and, and finally, your richest question, I mean, there are benefits in coordinating policy that the recession is global, but the point is that if the recession wasn't global, I, I don't think any individual country was going to get as into trouble in the way that we are now. I, I meant, starting from the bottom is the fact that we're all at the bottom. Helpful. Yeah, but we wouldn't have got to the bottom no. if we were not together. <laughs> 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 Danny. I, 
There are 15 seconds left for eight. Let me see how many large countries I can offend in this time. <laughs> Taking these in turn, the question about the inflation index, I think if we're going to, if monetary, if policymakers are going to restrict themselves to looking at one statistic, then incorporating asset prices or some other generalized indicator into a sensible inflation measure is, is, is eminently sensible. Charles Goodhart and many other monetary economists were suggesting that from as long as 10, 15 years ago. On the question of public ownership, I mean, we are not at all shy about imposing or inflicting public ownership on many sectors of the, well, not many, but some sectors of the economy, where we think there are public goods effects that emerge from those sectors. No one would be for uh, nationalizing, say, the, the, the bread-making industry. If something disastrous happened to bread manufacturers, most of us wouldn't be affected, not terribly much. But credit, channels of credit, you could argue, are now a public good. And perhaps we do need some kind of debate about whether we need public ownership of segments that in sensible ways. Yes, all the, all the problems of nepotism, corruption, and so on that Francesco mentioned are fraught in nationalized sectors, just as they are in family-owned private segments of huge swaths of the world. But we live with that. Finally, on the United States. I, I I, I cannot stand up here and go through a list of the 330 million Americans, some of whom will be responsible for the mess they were in, and many of whom are not. My own kids carry U.S. passports. When I talk about the U.S. economy or China or anybody, anywhere else, it is as a macroeconomic analyst. I'm a macroeconomist, and I have to think about large macro issues. And when we need to point fingers, fingers should be pointed. <laughs> Well, uh, uh, th thank you all very much. Thank you for your excellent questions. Uh, thanks to the speakers for their fantastic contributions. I just wanted to make one point, which uh, a thought which struck me uh, when Tim was saying that uh, from disasters, uh, good things can come. From the Great Recession in the 1930s, came a lot of wonderful economists. Uh, one of them, for example, here was James Mead, uh, who went on to invent the IMF. So hopefully some of you here will have been inspired tonight to think of uh, devoting your life to economics in order to make a better world. And thanks very much to the panel. Thank you.